0: Thank you, Seth, morning. Um, we're continuing in third John. If you will turn, that's page uh, 1907 in the Pew Bible. Third John, we're starting in verse nine. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will have nothing to do with us. So if I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, gossiping maliciously about us. Not satisfied with that, He refuses to welcome the brothers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone, and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him, and you know that our testimony is true. I have much to write you, but I do not want to do so with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace to you. The friends here send their greetings. Greet the friends there by name. Let us pray. Father, as we continue in this John's third epistle, we ask, Father, that the truth of the gospel would reign clear for us. We pray for hearts and minds that can focus and understand what it is that you're calling us to. That we would not get caught up in the wrong things, but that the finished work of Christ would so emanate from this text and from this sermon that we can't help but come face to face with it. And so, Father, we pray this morning for each and every person in this room that they would hear these words that you would instruct us from your truth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Now, the name Bill Romanowski may not mean anything to some of you. He's a former NFL player. He was a middle linebacker for the 49ers and the Eagles and the Broncos and the Raiders. He's a four-time Super Bowl champion. He's a great Great football player, fantastic athlete, but he is a terrible teammate. He's number one on the list of dirtiest football players ever. He's been sued several times by other players. He's kicked players in the head. He broke the jaw of another player, and football is a violent sport, so sometimes being brutal is to your advantage, but that was not Romanowski's problem. Romanowski was a terrible teammate. In fact, in one practice, he ripped off the helmet of, an, of his own teammate and punched the man in the eye socket to where the man had to retire from football. Many of his teammates have said that he was the worst teammate ever. So despite his unbelievable athleticism His inability to be a good teammate caused a great deal of strife for the team. Romanowski's problem was not that he was just ultra-competitive. His problem was that he was thinking of himself first. He was self-focused, and he put himself over his teammates, over others on the team. And that is where we are in 3 John, where we saw last week the Apostle John has written this letter to a man called Gaius, and he is walking in the truth. His love has been reported back to John. The fact that he is showing great hospitality to people that John is sending as itinerant preachers and missionaries to the church here... And John is encouraging him to carry on, and he encourages him because, not just because there are false teachers and false preachers in the area, but there are also bad teammates like Romanowski who are in the church, who are making it difficult for people like Gaius to walk out the truth in love. And so we read about them in verse 9 of 3 John. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So here is a person in the church possibly in a position of authority, or perhaps he just has a, a, a tremendous amount of, uh, of influence, and he ignores the authority of, of likely one of the last apostles in those days. And John has this authority as an apostle, as one who has witnessed the ministry of Christ and and, and has seen the resurrected Christ. But Diotrephes does not submit to authority. Rather, he submits to his own authority. And John says… So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us or or gossiping maliciously. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers, and he also stops those who want to, and he puts them out of the church. Diotrephes is working against the entire mission of the church. He refuses to submit to the authorities that God has put over the church. He, He speaks against the leadership of the church. And not content with that, John says, as if that were not enough, he refuses to welcome the brothers. He, he refuses to welcome those who we are sending who are there to help the mission of the church, who are there to help equip you and encourage you and build up your faith. And he refuses to. To not only show hospitality to them, but he's actually preventing people like Gaius from showing hospitality to these men by putting them out of the church. Diotrephes is a real piece of work. He's literally doing the exact opposite of everything he should be doing. He is the exact opposite of Gaius. They are clearly in contrast with each other. Gaius is walking in the truth, in love showing hospitality. The truth testifies to him, putting what he believes into practice. He is a source of joy to the Apostle John. He's a fellow worker for the truth. Diotrephes submits to his own authority. He's obviously a source of pain and frustration for the Apostle John. He deliberately keeps the gospel from being preached and, and, and from g- the good messengers coming in. He, he threatens and harasses anyone who, who tries to support them. Why does Diotrephes act like this? Well, there are a number of theories. Some say that He didn't like the power structure that was in the church in that day. He didn't like that John could rule from somewhere further away in sort of uh, Episcopal bishop-type structure. He he didn't like that. He thought that that the local church should have autonomy and, and should be able to have their preachers preach and not be sort of forced to bring these other people in. Okay? That could be one theory. Another one is that it was not a doctrinal issue, but rather just personal ambition, that, that, that Diotrephes had something against John, and so anyone that John would send, Diotrephes would say, no, I, we'd, I'd, I'm against John, and I don't want any of his guys coming here. The third one is that Diotrephes, whose name actually in the Greek means Zeus raised was part of a Greek uh, aristocratic class, and so this is a class issue. Well, we don't know exactly what the issue was. What we do know is that to John, the the root of the issue with Diotrephes was not theological, it was not social, it was not ecclesiastical, meaning within the church structure, but it was a moral issue at its core the root of the problem was sin. As he writes, Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first. What does Scripture say about this? Jesus in Mark's gospel, as we we talked about this last week, he you know, James and, and John have just asked for fire to come down to, to burn up the Samaritan village because they rejected them, and, and, and now James and John with their mommy are asking for uh, a position of authority when the judgment comes. You know, Lord, can, can James and John sit at your left and your right hand? Remember the sons of thunder, and, and, and then the disciples find out what's actually been taking place, and they're getting upset. Probably because, well, they want those seats of authority. And and so there's this infighting with the disciples. And what does Jesus say to them? In Mark chapter 10, he says, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. And what did Peter write about Right to the church as it relates to, to those in authority, to those who are shepherds, to those that are elders and in these high positions. Peter wrote, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being Examples to the flock John himself has probably taught this topic, this issue many many times he 's probably preached it in every church he 's been to he 's probably told a, a, a first hand example of you know my mom and, and my brother James and I were we, we misunderstood the what the first coming of Christ was all about, and, and we were looking for power and authority. We wanted it for ourselves. We, we didn't know the truth of the gospel yet. We, we didn't know what it was going to cost Christ for our salvation. This is also probably not the first time that John has had to deal with this issue because authority issues come up frequently. But you see, this issue can cause more damage than other issues because it is a rejection of authority and a promotion of self. This is the very sin that captured the hearts of Adam and Eve in the garden. The rejection of God as their ultimate authority and the promotion of their self, that they would be like God in Diotrephes' case, he, he is, he's stopping the work of ministry. He's stopping the preaching and the spread of the gospel. Self love is usually at the root of every church dissent. What is this teaching us? What are these verses teaching us? Because the thing is, we can be quick to go, I know some Diotrepheses. You know? I. I don't know how to do the plural of that, but, but I think we can all sit here and think, I know some people that act like that. Maybe not even as bad as that, but, but they're, they're bad. And I'm Gaius in this story because I'm always the hero in my story. <clears throat> I don't know if that's nervous laughter because you're agreeing with me or… Uh... But see, here's the reality The reality is that my tendency is maybe not be as outright and destructive as Diotrephes, but I still tend to see myself as more right than wrong. My heart still bends in on itself. My willful desire sometimes wins out. It is not natural to be selfless and kind and hospitable like Gaius. It's more natural to be self-focused like Diotrephes. Because I can sit and I can read this passage and I can pat myself on the back and say, you know, I I am kind and, and I am hospitable. But you see, we can even give of ourselves In a selfish way. We can give of ourselves in a selfish way as if it were by our effort that we curry or or gain favor with God. That, that, That is always the human condition. Christianity is really the only faith where it's not about trying to climb the ladder up to God by our works. But but this is is what we always go back to. We always try and go back to making it about our works and what we do and how we act as as the ultimate goal or, or as the thing that justifies us before God. But you see, that is not our situation, and it is never our situation. What justifies us before God is Christ. It has nothing to do with what we have done. It has to do with what He has done and what He has done on our behalf. We do not save ourselves. We don't don't choose God. God God sets His electing love on us and, and chooses us for while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Christ died for the ungodly. So any effort that we think we contribute to this is folly. And when a person understands that it is not by the works of the law that we are justified, but by grace we have been saved through faith. And none of this is of our own doing. It is all a gift of God. Again, not as a result of work so that no one can boast and put themselves first, But that the works that we do have been prepared in advance for us, that we should walk in them. When a person understands that, they understand truth. So we can ask ourselves the question, what is it that separates Gaius from Diotrephes? Again, John has clearly given us this distinct uh, comparison between the two. Is it just their actions that, that separate them? Yes, it is their actions, but it has to be deeper than that. It has to go further than just actions. One is walking in the truth and one is not. So what defines walking in the truth? Because we can, we can use that terminology, right? We can read this passage and then talk about walking in the truth, but, but we need to know what it is. It's presented through actions, but it comes from deeper. Look at what John says next. He says, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Don't imitate diotrephes. No matter how magnanimous his personality, no matter how forceful his arguments, no matter how persuasive his speech. We've seen this in the church in, in recent days, haven't we? Big, forceful personalities, people who speak well, but where is the fruit? And the fruit is not the size of the crowd that is drawn to to hearing the personality. It can't be. False prophets draw huge crowds every day. I'm sure that Diotrephes had quite a following. He's obviously garnered enough attention to where John actually has to write specifically about him and has to threaten to come in person and deal with the situation. So I'm sure Diotrephes had won over a few people. So numbers are not fruit. Then what is the fruit? The fruit is the fruit of the Spirit. Are they exhibiting love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? This is the fruit. And the fruit is only born when the roots are good. And the roots go deep into the soil. If the roots are in Christ, if the, if the roots are in, in understanding and knowing the character of God, and if you are planted deep in good soil, if you understand that we are not justified by the law nor by works but by grace, then self-love is unattractive. It's unattractive to you in your spirit. Now, your flesh and your spirit are at at odds with each other, but you know what is right. You, You don't need to be told what is right. You might need to be reminded of it, but you know what is right because you know God because you are from God, because you have been saved by grace through faith. And you know that that did not come from you. That, that, that there wasn't something inside of you that God said, I want to choose them. No. You know it didn't come from inside of you. And that is how Gaius is able to do what he does. Th- this is how Gaius walks out. The truth in love, it's not superficial, it's not fake. It comes from deep down where his confidence, where his trust lies. It comes from being rooted in the truth of the gospel, in knowing that Christ has called us to walk out the truth in love. So where are Diotrephes' roots? They don't appear to be in Christ. And his actions confirm that. But let me make a slight shift here. And let me ask you, would you get more joy and satisfaction in seeing Diotrephes judged and condemned and cast out? And I understand we don't, Obviously, personally, no diatrophy, so maybe substitute in a person that you have an issue with, that you struggle to love. Would you get more joy out of satisfaction and satisfaction in seeing that person judged and condemned and cast out, or in seeing them restored? In seeing them, in this case, corrected as John plans to do, but, but, but then seeing a change in their life? Or would you prefer to see them get what they deserve? No opportunity for return, no opportunity for restoration, just as he is treating those who support the missionaries, the the teachers that are coming in, getting what he deserves, receiving how he is treating. I ask you that question based on the next person that we are introduced to in this text. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. Now, Demetrius is probably the the letter carrier. He's the man that's coming with the letter to Gaius from John. And very likely, this is all that's taking place. We know that Diotrephes, I'm sorry for all the D- Greek names, but Diotrephes is the one that's putting people out of the church, not accepting anyone from John. And here comes Demetrius from John, and, and he's worried that he'll be put out, and so he has to give him a, a, a voucher, a, a vouchsafe. You know, he, he's good. Trust him, Gaius. He's a, we can vouch for him. Make sure he's not turned away. That could be the case, of course, But it could also be that this is the Demetrius who caused the riot in Ephesus when Paul and his companions came and preached the gospel and and, and started a, a, a massive conversion in the city. You read about this in Acts chapter 19 that silver was a major trade in Ephesus because they were making little shrines for the goddess Artemis. And one of the silversmiths, Demetrius, didn't like that his trade was dying out, so to speak, because what had happened was Paul came and preached the gospel, and, and masses of people were, were coming to Christ, and then they all decided, let's take our magic books and all of our religious books that have to deal with Artemis and all these things, and let's go burn them. And so there was this huge reaction to, to Paul's preaching of the gospel. And so the people whose incomes and lives were affected by this revolted against that. And this silversmith called Demetrius, he, he leads a, a counter-revolution to the gospel and he ends up dragging two of Paul's companions into the great amphitheater in Ephesus. And I've, I've had the privilege of standing in that place. And they, and they hold a trial there of these two men, of, of what they have done. Could it be that this is the same Demetrius, but then who has later been converted to Christ? And John would have likely sent Demetrius from Ephesus. And so it it, it could very well be the same person, and, and he needed the testimony of John because they would have said, this is Demetrius who started the, the, the riot, the revolution in Ephesus. He can't be trusted. And he says, no, no, he, he's testified to by the truth and ourselves. This would be like when, when Paul was visiting churches, and, and they still thought he was Saul, and, and so there was confusion. Could, could it be that this was the case? It could be. Uh, Again, I'm not making a definitive statement here. There's a second option here, or third option, rather. And it could be that Demetrius was known by a previous name, and that name is Demas. For you New Testament scholars, you know that name because Demas is written throughout Paul's letters. Uh, He was a companion with Paul. He, He traveled. He was a fellow worker But in Paul's last letter of 2 Timothy, he writes to Timothy and he says, Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Could Demas be this same? Demas definitely would have been a shortened version of Demetrius. Could could this be the same Demetrius? Could he have come to himself and and, and recognized the error of his way and come back and, and sought to be restored and And so John has to send him out with with a word of, we know you know who Demas is, but he's been restored to fellowship, and he has the testimony of us, and he he has the testimony of the truth himself because he's been forgiven. Again, I, I don't know. I hope you don't think I just wasted your time. Theologians like to spend a lot of their time trying to figure these things out. We don't know is the answer, but I mention them because I think it's worth us considering what does restoration look like. When John comes and rebukes Diotrephes, what would you hope the result would be? Our hope should be that that Diotrephes confesses and repents and, and is restored to fellowship Our hope is that he would see the the wickedness in his ways, that he would see that he is actually working against the gospel. He's obviously in the church. He must understand something. Our hope is that he would be then welcomed back into the community and not shunned from the community because we are saved by grace through faith and not by works. That is the truth of the gospel And if we are people who are walking in the truth, in love, then that should be our hope as well. Now, it may have gone like that or it may not have gone like that. But our hope is in the gospel and its transformative power in our own lives and in the lives of those around us. And I would imagine... that if Diotrephes had been restored, Gaius probably would have been the first person there to welcome him back into the community because Gaius understands the gospel and he is walking in the truth. Now, I have heard story after story of of men and women who who, who have struggled with all kinds of, of sins unfaithfulness, bitterness, unforgiveness, on and on and on and on and, 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 and big uh, uh, sins that would have caused issues within the church and, and, and the church has put some under discipline and some have been uh, put out of membership, as Paul tells the Corinthian church to do in 1 Corinthians, put out the immoral brother. I hope you're not getting a call to be put out of the church. <laughs> but you see the sad reality is, is having heard a lot of these stories and seen a lot of these stories is that heartbreakingly some of these people continue down that path of, of rejection and, and, and sin and, and they don't care and, they, and they, they depart from the church but there are some who come back in humility and and repentance, and are restored, and are welcomed back back to the table of fellowship. They're they're welcomed back to to celebrate the Lord's Supper together with the people of God. And what beautiful stories they are, because they are gospel stories. They're they're really all of our stories to greater and lesser extents, because we are called to be restoration people. We are called to be forgiving people. We are called to be patient people, because that is what our Lord is with us. Well, John concludes his short letter with this greeting in verse 13, I had much to write to you. Uh, Sorry, I'm reading from the ESV if you're confused. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. Imagine that, how much that would have meant to Gaius in a a world of confusion and chaos that, that surrounds him with all of this. But peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. A longing of of the apostle not not just to write, but but to be together face to face. There's something special about physical communion with people. Seeing facial expressions and not trying to read between the lines on an email or a text exchange, being able to ask a clarifying question and get to the heart issue of what's taking place, we miss out on all of those things when everything is digital. We, we we miss out on walking out the truth in love when things are impersonal. We miss out on peace when we are away from one another and perhaps you can testify to that when we were actually forced to be separated from each other and you came to the realization that we are relational people. That is how God created us. The Trinity is relational and, and so He's created us with the same image of God bearingness and, and we need to be together. And then John sends this greeting: Greet each individual by name—a a personal touch, a, a, a something that conveys uh, individuality, uh, value to each and every member of the congregation that they wouldn't feel forgotten or left out. But greet each one by name again—an image-bearingness, right? To, to to giving honor to whom it's due. Because the reality is that when, when preachers, when we get up and we teach on these things, it can feel a little impersonal because we're, 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 we're speaking to a, a wide gathering. But when we speak face-to-face, it, it, it's so intimate, it's so personal, and it, and it tends to have a deeper impact. John says we will confront diatrophies in person. Not in the letter, not via... Demetrius, who's bringing the letter, he will personally come because Diotrephes is obviously not responding to the other letters, and it requires an in-person meeting. And I know this might sound like a strange tangent, but, it, but it's, it's such a reminder for us who we are about to partake in the, the Lord's Supper at the Lord's Table, and, and it's personal it's a reminder of the of the church in Corinth that, that Paul's writing to that were a people who were not walking in the truth in love. People who were not good teammates, but were rather being self-focused like diotrephes, putting themselves of the other person, treating people on a on a class value level and and not seeing the person next to them as a, as a fellow image bearer, really. What they are is their brothers and sisters in Christ, which is much deeper, further step like that. And so they're acting unkindly and they're acting unlovingly. And so they look more like the world and less like the church. And, and Paul is upset with them. And he has to remind them of what they have been called to. And so we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have been There have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for as you eat, each one of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. This cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks of the cup, for anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body, the body of believers, without recognizing the body of the Lord, eats and drinks judgment on Himself. That is why many of you are weak weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep or died. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord... We are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the word, with the world. Father, as we are about to partake of these elements of the bread and the wine, we understand our hearts and our minds' proclivity to want to elevate ourselves to allow our hearts to be bent in towards self. And yet this table screams to us that, that that is not what it's about, but it is about what the Lord has done for us. It is that Christ went to the cross willingly and laid his life down and had his body torn and his blood spilled so that we could be in fellowship He drank the cup of your wrath, Father, so that we could now partake in these elements and be welcomed at the table of fellowship with him. So, Father, let us not be people who think of ourselves first, but let us be people who look and see and recognize the body of the Lord, this body of believers who you've equipped with different giftings and different abilities and that our great hope would be in the knowledge of the gospel, in knowing that Christ came and saved. And it is not by our works and it is not by the works of the law that save us, but it is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And now we get to stop.